says, You, Lord, have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So people will be brought low and everyone humbled. Do not forgive them. Go into the rocks, hide in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. For all the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan, for all the towering mountains and all the high hills, for every lofty tower and every fortified wall, for every trading ship and every stately vessel, the arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols will totally disappear. People will flee to caves in the rocks and to holes in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. In that day, people will throw away to the moles and bats their idols of silver and idols of gold, which they made to worship. They will flee to caverns in the rocks and to the overhanging crags from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. Stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? See now the Lord, the Lord Almighty, is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, all supplies of food and all supplies of water, the hero and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the man of rank, the counselor, skilled craftsman and clever enchanter. I will make mere youths their officials. Children will rule over them. People will oppress each other, man against man, neighbor against neighbor. The young will rise up against the old, the nobody against the honored. A man will seize one of his brothers in his father's house and say, You have a cloak. You be our leader. Take charge of this heap of ruins. But in that day, he will cry out, I have no remedy. I have no food or clothing in my house. Do not make me the leader of the people. Jerusalem staggers. Judah is falling. Their words and deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. The look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. They have brought disaster upon themselves. Tell the righteous it will be well with them, for they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked. Disaster is upon them. They will be paid back for what their hands have done. Youths oppress my people. Women rule over them. My people, your guides lead you astray. They turn you from the path. The Lord takes his place in court. He rises to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment against the elders and leaders of his people. It is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. The Lord says, The women of Zion are haughty, walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, strutting along with swaying hips, 
with ornaments jingling on their ankles. Therefore the Lord will bring sores on the heads of the women of Zion. The Lord will make their scalps bald. In that day the Lord will snatch away their finery, the bangles and headbands and crescent necklaces, the earrings and bracelets and veils, the headdresses and anklets and sashes, the perfume bottles and charms, the signet rings and nose rings, the fine robes and the capes and cloaks, the purses and mirrors and the linen garments and tiaras and shawls. Instead of fragrance, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-dressed hair, baldness. Instead of fine clothing, sackcloth. Instead of beauty, branding. Your men will fall by the sword, your warriors in battle. The gates of Zion will lament and mourn. Destitute, she will sit on the ground. In that day, seven women will take hold of one man and say, We will eat our own food and provide our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our disgrace. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem, the Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything, the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and a hiding place from the storm and rain. Thanks, Carl. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, please give us strength uh, to hear your words and to understand them, uh, to take them to heart and to believe them uh, and to put our trust in you. Lord, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, pride, I think, seems to be an especially offensive fault. Uh, All of us, I, I suspect, suffer from pride in one way or another. Uh, in various different ways, and all of us probably find the pride of other people hard to stomach. Uh, In Jane Austen's novel Pride and Prejudice, it only takes one appearance of Mr Darcy for the whole town to be set against him. He turns up at one of the local balls, and and Jane Austen says that for half the night he was popular, everyone looked at him as if he was rich and famous, uh, but it only took half the night for people to realise that he was... Uh, proud and that he considered himself to be above everybody's company, uh, to be above being pleased. Uh, Pride is offensive uh, to other people uh, and undermines our relationships with them. But pride in the Bible is not uh, simply off-putting. Pride in the Bible is also incredibly dangerous. The 20th century Uh, London preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said that pride was the most dangerous of all sins, the worst of all sins, because it's pride which prevents us from embracing the gospel. It's pride which prevents us from giving up our lives uh, to the rule of Jesus. It's pride that prevents us from receiving God's gift in Jesus. And that pride in all of us must be conquered if we're ever to 
uh, come to Christ. Well, Isaiah 2 to 4 is all about pride. It's about the pride which keeps people from God, and it's about God working to humble people so that they uh, trust Him rather than trust everything else but Him. Uh, In three sections, in chapters 2 to 3, God targets three different areas of the people's pride. He targets their pride uh, and He shows how empty it is. He targets their pride in human schemes, their pride in human leaders, and their pride in human appearance. So in the first section then, from chapter 2, 6 to 22, God exposes the people's false confidence in human schemes. Verse 22 summarises the theme of that section. Stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? Stop trusting in humans or, uh, perhaps better, stop trusting in human schemes. Uh, How the people were doing that is then explained in the first part of the chapter. Verse 6 of chapter 2 Uh, says, you, Lord, have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. God has abandoned his people, says Isaiah, because the people are full of pride. First of all, that manifests itself in the people having adopted pagan customs of the Philistines. They practice divination and various other superstitions. They think that if they do those things, they can work out the future and control their destinies. Rather than simply trusting that God is the one who's sovereign uh, over their destinies. How stupid we are to think Uh, and we do it all the time, how stupid we are to think that our futures are within our control. How foolish to think that what we aim to do is what we'll achieve. That if we set our minds to it, we'll get there. That's all we have to do. We just have to work hard, stick at it, and we'll get to whatever it is that we're doing. It's the modern conceit that we're self-created people with self-created destinies. And it's not true. Then in verse 7, Isaiah says, Their land is full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There's no end to their chariots. They've stuffed themselves full with money and its trappings. They've got the mod cons. Uh, And what need do they have for God apart from that? They also have all the latest military technology. They've got loads uh, loads of horses and chariots. And in those days, horses and chariots were kind of like the equivalent of Rommel's panzer divisions, you know, uh, making their way across the the Western Front, demolishing everything that stood in their path. They were way above all the kind of military technology of the day. And the people think, well, if we've got this, what do we need God for? Why, Why do we need God to protect us? Seldom, of course, are we that explicit in moving our trust from God to Uh, our possessions or the the kind of the security mechanisms that we have in our lives. But we see the sentiment of that clearly when we compare how much time we spend planning our finances compared to how much time we spend praying. We see it in how much we panic when our finances are threatened. Uh, We see it when we face the uncertainties of the world and we think to ourselves, well, we've got a good government uh, who knows what's going on, we have good police, we have good military forces, uh, they've got it all under control. 
uh, and we never turn to God and, and trust in him. One of the things I realized uh, in my former life, I worked for the Department of Defense, and one of the things I realized working for the Department of Defense was there is a very wafer-thin line between safety and anarchy. It is a miracle of God's grace that we are not more troubled than we are. In verse 8, we find out that the people have built idols with their own hands uh, that they can bow down to. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to, them, uh, to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made, says uh, Isaiah. It's not immediately clear, I think, how idolatry can be a form of human pride. After all, idolatry is implicitly trusting in something that's not human, right? Idolatry is trusting in, in another God. So how is that trusting in human schemes? But I think verse 17 later on suggests that uh, human pride is the issue with idolatry, and it says there, the arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols will totally disappear. Totally disappear. So the removal of idols is a solution to their human pride. And when you reflect on the accusation of verse 8 a little bit more, I think it becomes clear how idolatry is a kind of human pride. God says that people bow down to the work of their own hands and to what their fingers have made. Idolatry in the end is not simply a case of manufacturing a false god, but it's manufacturing a god in the image which we think God should have. So idolatry is fundamentally an expression of what we think God should be like. If we were to make God ourselves, what would he be like? Well, this is what he'd be like. I'll make him. It's similar to the kind of mistake that people often make uh, in marriage and, in fact, in lots of relationships. They don't accept the other person for who they are uh, and so they try and recreate them in their own image. They try and turn them into the person that they want them to be. And God says here that we do that with him, that we try and turn God into the God that we want him to be rather than the God that he is, rather than listening to who he says he is in the Bible. So we say to ourselves, well, God should be loving. Yes, the Bible says that God is loving, but then we decide what loving should look like. We might say, I can't believe that God would send people to hell. So we reimagine a God who doesn't do that. We refashion God into our image of what God should be like. Or we might say, I can't believe that God would have a problem with that sin, whatever that sin is. And so we refashion God into, the, into our image of what God should be like. We refashion him into a God who affirms the sins that we cherish and who loathes the sins that we despise in other people. So uh, Adam Ford the, uh, pointed out in one of his recent web comics that the sentiment which besets much of Western Christianity is this, I know my Jesus and my Jesus wants me to seek my own truth and happiness regardless of what anyone else says. I've come to understand that God loves and accepts my true self. So in one clever move, we haven't abandoned God but we've recreated a God whose highest goal is for us to be God. 
God's highest good becomes God being completely subservient to our self-image. God becomes subservient to our truth rather than us becoming servants of God's will and purpose. The result of all that false confidence in human schemes, says Isaiah, is that God will humble his people. Verse 9, so people will be brought low and everyone humbled. Do not forgive them. Go into the rocks, hide in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. God threatens to humble people for their pride. Isaiah even pleads that God wouldn't forgive them, which is a terrifying thought. And in a sense, as long as the people remain persistent in their willful and proud rebellion against God, why should he forgive them? So long as they're going the other way, why should he have mercy on them? And so in what follows is a complete reversal of the false pride which has marked uh, the people of God. Their towers will be destroyed, their fortified cities will be breached, their trading ships will be brought to nothing. They'll end up fleeing to caves, not fortresses, throwing to wild animals their self-created gods, their idols. And they'll end up trying to hide uh, from the presence of God. We think we're so sophisticated, and in many ways, as human beings, we are. Uh, Humans have advanced significantly, haven't they, since the time of Isaiah? We have cars and planes, we send people into space, people uh, plan trips to Mars, we have fantastic medical resources, we've eradicated diseases, we've dramatically reduced death through things like infection. But God shows us here that trust in all those things is a terrible, terrible mistake. Because it's God who makes those things work. It's God who stands behind them. It's God who makes those things effective. And God can just as easily take all those things away. And sometimes he does take them away. That's what he was doing to the people in Isaiah's day. He, he took away the, 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 the object of their trust. He took away their source of pride so that they would see that it's not those things that we should trust but God. And sometimes God does that to us as well. God takes away from us the the objects of our trust and the source of our pride so that we would turn to God. And so when those things fail us, as they inevitably do, we begin to realise that for all our technological advancement, we're terribly, terribly fragile. We might have much safer cars, but people still die on the roads. In the last few years, I think the road toll has gone up nationally. We might have antibiotics, but people still die through infection. Our antibiotics are becoming less and less effective. We might have global organisations for the pursuit of peace, but there are still wars. We've heard tragically about that this morning, haven't we? We might have much more sophisticated police and intelligence agencies, but there's still crime. In the first section of Isaiah 2 to 4, God shows the emptiness of trusting in human schemes rather than trusting in God. In the next section, then, uh, that trust in human schemes 
narrows down and God shows the emptiness uh, of uh, uh, trusting in human leaders. So in Isaiah uh, chapter 3, verse 1, we read, See now the Lord, the Lord Almighty, is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, all supplies of food and all supplies of water, the hero and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counsel, the skilled craftsman, the clever enchanter. God is threatening to take away all the leaders in the nation of Israel, uh, all the leaders that people are putting their trust in. And not just leaders in the sense of politicians and CEOs and kings and all that kind of stuff, but leaders in the sense of leaders of industry, leaders of areas of expertise. So God's going to take all the skill and expertise from his, his people, heroes, warriors, judges, prophets, diviners, elders, craftsmen. Uh, in the business world, people talk about corporate knowledge. I don't know if you've ever heard that term, but the idea is that there's, uh, within a corporation, there's this body of knowledge and, uh, and it needs to be, it's spread throughout the, the workers of the, of, the, of the company. But what often happens is that the knowledge of the corporation gets caught up in one or two people. Uh, so there's only one person who knows how to do the accounts. Uh, or there's only one person who knows how to, uh, to, to do the product management. Uh, and the risk is that if that person dies or they leave the company or something like that, you can end up with this, with this company that's no longer able to do its basic business. They've lost this corporate knowledge. They've lost this expertise. And here in Isaiah uh, chapter 3, God is saying he's not merely going to do that just to a company, but he's going to do that to an entire nation. The entire nation is going to lose their sense of how to do things. They're going to lose all their experts in all the different fields. God's going to take it away. Imagine what that would be like if that were to happen to a whole society. Imagine what it would be like to lose uh, not just the farmers, but all the kind of the people who are knowledgeable in how to do farming. Who would grow the food? How would we do it? How would we work it out? Imagine if we lost all our judges or policemen. Who would, who would keep justice? Who would keep the law? Imagine losing uh, not just builders, but all the building expertise. Imagine if you couldn't Google, how do I fix the tap? Uh, you know, or, or uh, when's the best time to plant carrots? And imagine that there was no one else you could ask. That kind of national impoverishment often happens in countries that are ravaged by war. I suspect that's exactly what's happening in South Sudan as we speak. It happens because those leaders and experts die uh, or because they flee to somewhere else. Uh, and what is left behind often is a, a country which is seriously diminished uh, in terms of its abilities to care for its own people. But shockingly here, God promises to do that himself, to his own people. To take away from his own people their leaders, their experts, because his people are putting their trust in those things rather than in God. And we so easily, I think, in the same way as the people of Israel, can live with a kind of a functional trust in human expertise at the expense of trusting in God. So we might say to ourselves, 
uh, I trust God and I don't, my trust is not in these people or these experts. But the deeper reality is that we don't trust God and we do trust the experts. So we have a health problem and we go to the doctor, which is fine, that's the right thing to do. But we don't also pray that God would uh, make the doctor's work effective. Or if we do pray, we don't actually believe that he'll answer that prayer. Uh, Or we get expert advice from our accountant on how to uh, structure the business or how to uh, plan for our retirement, which again is the right thing to do. But we don't also pray that God would guide our decisions or that God would uh, bring the ends which we're seeking to accomplish through those plans. The stock market can crash. We can lose all our money. And it's not until all those things are taken away from us that we begin to realise how much we've trusted in them rather than trusting in, in God. So we discover that our doctor can't fix us, that our doctor can't solve our problem. Or we discover that the financial advice that we've received is not as good as we thought. Uh, And our trust in those things is exposed for what it is. We despair. What am I going to do now? But the result of that revelation is not always positive. It doesn't always lead people back to God. And here in Isaiah, God says that when he takes away those leaders, the result will not be good. The result will be that amateurs are appointed to positions of power. So uh, chapter 3, verse 4, I will make me use their officials. Children will rule over them. People will oppress each other, man against man, neighbour against neighbour. The young will rise up against the old, the nobody against the honoured. A man will seize one of his brothers in his father's house and say, you have a cloak, you be our leader. Take charge of this heap of ruins. But in that day he will cry out, I have no remedy. I have no food or clothing in my house. Do not make me the leader of the people. God takes away the human leaders, but instead of turning to God, the people turn to anybody. They turn to to the people without expertise. They become desperate and appoint anyone to the position. Children are appointed, or if you like, amateurs. Uh, They're appointed to the positions of authority and power that they've lost. The desperation in the people is, is palpable. The only qualification in verse 6 that one person has to lead is that they have a cloak. You have a cloak, you lead us. It would almost be funny, I think, uh, if it wasn't so tragically familiar. Rather than turning to God, the people seem to be so wedded to their desperate trust in human leadership that they'll reach out for anyone uh, and put them in place. And all around the world, I think, we see that kind of desperation growing. Uh, In the US, we've recently seen uh, a man elected president with no experience in public office uh, or public service and with a pretty poor record in business administration as well, at least in terms of uh, the wealth creation of other people apart from himself. Uh, across, Across the globe, nations are lunging from one side of politics to the other, from the far left to the far right. In desperation, people are electing protest parties and the inexperienced in the vain hope of a better lot. We've seen that in our own country in recent times with very inexperienced people being elected uh, unexpectedly to Parliament. Here in Australia too, we're seeing more and more one-term governments 
People grasp for one government in the hope that it will bring a solution. It doesn't work. And three or four years later, they turn to the other side in the hope that they'll do it. There's a kind of desperation, I think. Actually, quite an immense desperation in uh, the hearts of people. There's a vacuum of suitable leadership. But instead of turning to God... We turn to whoever it is that we can lay to hand quickly. I think it's possible to discern a similar kind of trend in other areas of society as well. Uh, You see it in the rise of things like alternative medicine. Uh, So I'm not necessarily suggesting that all alternative medicine is uh, bogus, but it's certainly true, I think, Uh, undeniably true that as people's false hopes in traditional medicine to cure all their problems, that is, they hope that medicine will cure all their problems and they discover that it doesn't, people are increasingly appointing as their experts others who have little expertise in anything. People who have no more qualification often than a cloak. That is, in the absence of running to God, people will run for anything at all. And God here is seeking to expose that lie and that myth, that false trust in his people uh, and in us as well. So God uh, exposes the emptiness of trusting in human schemes. Uh, He exposes the emptiness of trusting in human leaders Next, he focuses on the people's false pride in their appearance. He says in verse 16, The women of Zion are haughty, walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, strutting along with swaying hips, with ornaments jingling on their ankles. Uh, The arrogance here is displayed by the people's deportment, uh, looking down their nose at others, flirting, walking seductively, covered in precious metals and uh, ornaments. Uh, The critique is primarily against women, not, I think, because obsession with beauty is only an issue for women, but presumably because at the time in Jerusalem, the issue was particularly problematic for women at that time, uh, more than it was for men. Throughout history, of course, uh, both men and women have been obsessed uh, with image, and there's plenty of evidence today that that remains true. Uh, one of the ironies, I think, one of the real ironies, as opposed to the false ironies of the hipster movement, uh, which is largely against largely men, one of the false, uh, one of the real ironies, I should say, is that people are profoundly obsessed with their image. So they claim not to be, and yet are incredibly obsessed uh, with with how they look. Our shops are plastered with beauty products for men and women, uh, with magazines about beauty for men and women with ads promoting beauty for men and women. And the ridiculous but strangely powerful idea is that beauty uh, of itself can provide for us all that we need. So we think that if we can just be beautiful, our lives will be complete. We won't need anything else. We end up living as though if we're beautiful, God is less important uh, or not important at all. And if you don't think that you've been deluded by that lie, then just ask yourself how much time you spend pursuing God compared to how much time you spend pursuing a new outfit. How much time do you spend with God as opposed to how much time do you spend at the shops? 
that shows, I think, how much we put our trust in God versus how much we put our trust and hope in uh, our appearance. But how ridiculous it is to think that beauty is enough. But it strangely possesses a hypnotic power, I think, uh, to convince us that it is. But beauty offers no protection. It is itself incredibly fragile. It's easily damaged. It offers no power. The beauty, the beautiful and the ugly alike die. It offers no reconciliation with God, as though we could stand before God and he could ask on the day of judgment, why should I forgive you? And we could say, well, I'm beautiful. But what a horrible injustice that would be if beauty could atone for our evil. And beauty offers no promise of eternity. Beauty fades. In contrast, the the offer of the gospel in Jesus Christ gives us protection that cannot be overcome. It gives us a power that that conquers death, forgiveness that is grounded in the certainty of the cross, and eternity forged in the resurrection of Jesus. How ridiculous to spend our life aiming for beauty when the gospel gives us actually what our hearts most desperately long for. And yet, we are so easily deceived, I think. And so God is determined to drive that truth home to his people. And again, God's response is a complete reversal of the situation. Verse 17, Therefore the Lord will bring sores on the heads of the women of Zion. The Lord will make their scalps bald. In that day the Lord will snatch away their finery, the bangles and headbands and crescent necklaces. Verse 24, Instead of fragrance, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-dressed hair, baldness. Instead of fine clothing, sackcloth. Instead of beauty, branding. God will take away from the people everything which they've taken pride in, everything they put their hope in. There's even a shortage of marriageable men. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 1. In that day, seven women will take hold of one man and say, we'll eat our own food and provide our own clothes, only let us be called by your name. Take away our disgrace. Look how powerless their beauty has become. What they thought was their indestructible power to achieve their destiny and to attract uh, the men that they could marry has been devastated by something so simple and so completely outside their control. That is, there's no men to marry. Well, having beauty ripped away might seem like a terrible fate, But how much better to be ugly and to trust God than to be beautiful and proud and go to hell. It is, in fact, a great kindness of God that sometimes he takes away the things that we trust in in order that we would turn away from them and and flee to him. How much better it is uh, for our vain hopes to come to nothing so that we might turn to God than that we live a life of empty hope and empty confidence, only to find out at the last moment that everything that we thought we had was nothing at all. 
How much better to discover now that beauty is vain, that human achievements don't conquer death, and that human leaders can't fix the world. How much better to discover that now, today, than to discover that on the other side of death? How frightful to, be, to live a life so deceived. How much better to discover that now when we can still turn to God than to discover that when it's too late to do anything about it. In the end, God's chastisements are a mercy for his people. Uh, He doesn't do it out of spite. He does it out of love. So that we would see the emptiness of our false hopes and that that would drive us to him. So God exposes the people's trust in human schemes and human leaders and human uh, appearance. And in the last few verses uh, of chapter 4, he offers us a picture of hope amidst the ruins of our failed expectations. He says in 4.2, in that day, that is, in the day when all this catastrophe has come on the people, in that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors of Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem, the Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over... All of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything, the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and rain. What God offers the people is everything that their failed human achievements uh, had been unable to do. Uh, God will raise up a branch. It's the language used in the Old Testament to refer to a king that God would raise up to rule his people. God will raise up another ruler, not like the failed rulers of his people. And through that ruler, the land will be fruitful. The, the fruit from the land will be like nothing they've ever known before. And this ruler, this, this, this leader that God says he will raise up will be beautiful and glorious. While the women of Jerusalem had striven for beauty and lost it, this king will be beautiful and glorious and majestic. And so too will God's people. They'll be beautiful and glorious. God will wash away the filth of the women. He'll cleanse all the people of Jerusalem from all their guilt and all their sin. They'd been superficially beautiful. They'd had the trinkets, they'd had the walk, they'd had the swinging hips. But their hearts were filthy and vile. And yet God says, I will cleanse you. I'll wash away all that filth. I'll do what nothing that you had known before could do. I'll do what no beauty product you buy can ever do. I'll do what no amount of trips to the gym can ever uh, change in you. I'll change your heart. I'll forgive your sins. I'll cleanse you. I'll turn you into a person fit to live with me. God will achieve what no human leader or no human scheme could do. He will offer unending protection, a cloud of protection from the harsh sun by day and a flaming fire to light up the night, a shelter from the heat 
and a refuge from the storms. And what God promised those people, God has done for them and for us in Jesus Christ. God has raised up Jesus, who is beautiful and glorious, who is wise and compassionate, who is gracious and kind, who is a ruler like no other ruler, a leader like no other leader, an expert beyond any expert. He can give us a beauty that nothing else can give us. He can wash us from every defilement, from every stain of sin. He can shelter us from everything, from the things that nothing else can protect us from. He can shelter us from death and hell and judgment. In Jesus, God has given us what we've always wanted, but which we've always sought after in all the wrong places and in all the wrong ways. Our world is longing for a better ruler, for a grander scheme, for a greater beauty. We're longing. You and I are longing for that, aren't we? We're longing for a better world, for a better king, for a greater beauty. And there's nowhere else that it can be found except in God's glorious Son, Jesus Christ. What are you trusting in? God says trust in Jesus. Because Jesus gives us all that we hope for and delivers us from every evil. Let's pray. Oh Lord and Heavenly Father, gracious God, eternal Lord, we want to confess to you our vain hopes, our wrongful pride, our misplaced trust. That every day pollutes our lives and robs you of your glory. Lord, forgive us for trusting in the things around us, the people around us. Forgive us for trusting in ourselves, in our beauty, in our talent, in our money, in our wealth, in our plans, in our governments in our health insurance, in our work, in our intellect. in our self-management, in our family, in our children, in our investments. Lord, we pray that it wouldn't take the removal of all those things for us to realise our false hopes and false trusts. We pray that you might spare us that indignity. 
and that our hope might be firmly anchored in Jesus Christ. But Lord, if it should be that there is no other way to turn our trust to you, we ask that you would do all that it takes to rob us of all that we have, that we might turn to you and have life in Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.